You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Part of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, he's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we will go live to the Manhattan Federal Courthouse, where the opening arguments are set to begin for Sam Bankman-Fried's historic Ford trial. We'll have the latest. Plus, we'll talk investing in generative AI with a key hedge fund investor. And, of course, we're going to go live to Alphabet's Made by Google event as the company takes on Apple with a new Pixel that's, well, more like an iPhone. But let's go back to the crypto story today because it is a historic moment. A jury has been selected. Opening arguments are set to start today for Sam Bankman-Fried's trial where he's accused of orchestrating one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Joining us now from outside that very courthouse with the latest Blue Ocean Ali Basak and we'll get us up to speed with who's going to be listening in on all these oral arguments. Yeah, it's a good point. We are just getting an idea of what the jury will look like here. You're looking at a nurse, a physician assistant, a social worker who is currently unemployed and has previously served on a jury before. You are uh, looking also at, uh, you know, uh, folks who are retired corrections officers, high, uh, other high school graduates, advertise. You have a mix of people here. You have a number of jurors here that, again, have been very heavily questioned here over the last 24 hours, Caroline, about whether they had preconceived notions about cryptocurrencies uh, and other parts of Sam Bankman-Fried's world, like, uh, for example, effective altruism. That's another thing that the jury had asked to make sure that there weren't going to be negative vibes coming from that jury headed into the six-week trial uh, with very serious criminal counts being faced by Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, as I stand outside the courthouse, the jury, as we say, has been selected. We know generally who these people are, yeah. uh, what they have, uh, what they do for a living, how they have been questioned. The opening arguments are starting imminently as well. We will hear from the pro prosecution really for the first time to lay out their argument. And more importantly, we don't know how Sam Bankman-Fried prepares to defend himself against these charges. And mm. we will hear from them as well in a series of 30 to 40 minute open rem remarks from both sides. Of course, 31-year-old pleading not guilty to wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, securities fraud, the list goes 
on, Shanali. It's quite a changed Sam Manfred who entered that courtroom, much slimmer and changed, well, certainly from a hair perspective. But how do we think his demeanor has changed? Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, to your point here, a lot of people have been talking about the way his, his appearance has changed. He looks noticeably thinner. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, he has also uh, been dressing a lot differently, buying suits from Macy's at a 40% discount. Remember, he was known for that T-shirt and shorts and even flip-flops in front of even world dignitaries in the past. But now he is suited up indeed as he enters court himself. We'll see. Uh, we don't know that he will necessarily testify. He's not currently expected to testify. And what tone he would take if he would, but again, much more silent. We are not used to Sam Bankman-Fried being so silent. Leading up to these charges, you remember just how much he had taken to the media to describe what had happened at FTX. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, it's been nothing but silence. And so uh, this will be a telling trial. Remember, after those opening remarks, which will take about an hour or so here, we will also start to hear from witnesses. And that will start to get very important as we know that a number of his close closest friends and colleagues over time are expected to testify in this trial. Important for the individuals, important for the industry, liquidity in the digital asset market still only half of what it was before the FTX collapse. Shanali Basak on the ground there for us all day. We thank you for it. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to get the outlook. Well, for what we're all now talking about, if it's not crypto, we're talking about AI, investing, and we're going to discuss why Apple's CEO, Tim Cook, just decided to sell 500,000 shares of the iPhone maker. Let's have a look on Apple stock, of course. In fact, it seems to be timed along with the downgrade. KeyBank, the analyst over there, saying it's high valuation, weak sales outlook. The analyst really worrying about the stock's valuation as a large premium to the Nasdaq they say in US sales they're likely to struggle we'll have more ahead still managing to tread water up three tenths of a percent on a day where the Nasdaq is up more than a percentage point this is Bloomberg technology what if everyone at work were an expert communicator what if every doc message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise inbox numbers would drop customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive that's where Grammarly comes in Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
Time now for Talking Tech. First up, Apple CEO Tim Cook selling shares of the iPhone maker in his biggest sale in more than two years. Cook sold 511,000 shares. That's worth about $41 million after taxes. It's all according to a filing with the SEC. It all comes after Cook took a red pay cut, about 40%, to just $49 million for 2023. Meanwhile, Intel is planning to make its Altera unit into a standalone business and take it public. The programmable chip division will become an independent entity starting January 1st. It's all part of the CEO Pat Gelsinger's efforts to really try and wring more value from the semiconductor company. Meanwhile, let's turn our attention to AI because Masayoshi-san has a message for Japan. Adopt artificial intelligence or get left behind. It was the SoftBank founder's first public appearance in months at SoftBank World. It's an annual event for the tech investors' domestic corporate clients. Now, the billionaire compared humans without AI to goldfish just in a bowl, unable to process information like language. So let's talk more about this AI euphoria, AI necessity, and how to play it. James Fishback's with us. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Azoria Partners. It's a global macro hedge fund. Prior to Azoria, of course, you were with macro investing over at Greenlight Capital. And James, therefore, with, with your focus on all the ways in which you could get long AI, is it about smaller companies, bigger companies? How do you play this? Well, Carolyn, it's a real pleasure to be here. But let me say that to Masha's point, I, my name is Fishback, so I am the, the goldfish <laughs> in this equation. So I'm trying to figure that out. But I think the way to look at this is to look at some of the companies that have the best balance sheets, the best markets, and existing user workflows and ecosystems, and then monetize off of that. At the risk of sounding like Steve Jobs in January of 2007 when he launched the iPhone, the, the types of companies you think you really want to look at in this environment are the hyperscalers, the ones that are providing the cloud computing infrastructure, the amplifiers of this technology that can then deploy it to existing users and devices, and the innovators, those who are either developing or are strategically partnering with those who are developing. And so much like Steve Jobs said, these are not three separate companies in many cases. They're actually one company in several cases. Microsoft is one of them. I believe that Google and Amazon are others as well. And so it's a unique opportunity to own strong cash flow generative businesses that offer embedded optionality to capitalize on the AI boom. Interesting that it really seems to be being owned by the United States at this time, James. When you're thinking about what's happening with Microsoft's partnership with something like an open AI, how do you see these sort of frenemies continuing? How do you see the companies striking these? We just had Amazon, of course, taking a big stake and, and partnership as well with other key players in the space. How do you, does that accelerate? Is that just the way in which you want to see deals being done? That's exactly what you want to see. You want to see key innovators of this technology, like Anthropic, like OpenAI, have strategic partners in Amazon and in Microsoft, respectively, to then deploy that technology. Look at Microsoft today. Their 365 co-pilot product is now being opened accessed to 160 million enterprise users who can now use it to expedite workflows in Microsoft Word, in Excel, and in PowerPoint. And so you now take users who are already using used to Microsoft Word, already used to the existing workflows that they have, and then you're supercharging it. You know, if I wanted to go to a Fortune 500 company and sell them Fishback AI and say it's the best worst, uh, word processor out there, I couldn't do that because I don't have those kind of relationships. Microsoft has a moat in this market. They have the relationships. They have the trust. They're going to drive value for enterprise players, and as a result, they can drive pricing power longer term. Do you think that there's a risk that any of these really big 
and in many ways companies trying to fight the monopoly oligopoly name that keeps being thrown at them. Is there any risk they get displaced? I mean, in the same time as the dot-com boom and bust, in the same way that we've seen some business models just eroded, are all of them ahead of the curve? Are any of them at, at risk of losing their mantle? You're, you're absolutely right. I think there's reason to be skeptical, Caroline, by what happened in early 2000 with the dot-com bubble. But there's a couple key differences here. One is valuation. The peak valuation at the dot-com bubble was 52 times earnings for these average tech stocks. The average AI tech stock today at the top of the list has a PE of around 25 times. And that simple comparison is to say nothing about the strong fundamental position these companies are in. As I said earlier, they are free cash flow generators. They have strong balance sheets. They have simple, predictable businesses. They don't need to rely on debt and equity markets. Increasingly, a debt market that's seeing rising interest rates, it seems like every single day now, to fund the aggressive R&D behind this. So I think they're doing all the right things. Microsoft with OpenAI, Amazon with Anthropic, Google with DeepMind and its own internal operations to then power this forward. And the thing that I'm most excited about is these companies already have billions of existing users and device ecosystems that they can deploy this new technology to pretty much overnight. So you don't have to make a lot of assumptions here to see how powerful and how impactful this technology can be, not just for the end user, but also for their fundamental share prices. And it's allowed the NASDAQ to really repin the reward for this year but September was really ugly James and September was ugly because of the macro picture because of the worry of what the Federal Reserve is going to do how we tame inflation a very strong jobs market how do you think these big tech bets can withstand a higher for longer scenario it's a great question, and there's no, no doubt about it. The macro picture over the past month has been challenging, to say the least. Look at what's happened to 30-year Treasury yields in the U.S. and the higher-for-longer hawkish narrative coming from the Federal Reserve. I think the key thing to note here is that the AI view is not a multi-quarter view. It is a multi-year view. And so if you look at some of these companies, they have the potential to compound. In the case of Microsoft, it's compounded at 25% over the past decade, year over year, and that's despite all the macro volatility, both in the real economy and in the financial system we've seen. Yet at the same time, it's important to look at what this opportunity presents long term. I think a key assumption, Caroline, in this space is that higher rates is actually negative for this type of narrative for big tech going higher. And I don't think that could be further from the truth. And here's why. Companies like Apple, who issued 30-year debt at a mid-2 percentage rate back in 2021, that have turned out debt in many cases for 10 or 15 years, have strong balance sheets, are seeing higher rates, but are not actually seeing higher effective interest costs. One, because their liabilities have been fixed, the large issuance in 2020 and 2021 that was, of course, aided by quantitative easing at the Fed, and by their liability, by their assets, rather, which are actually increasing in value as their, in the case of Microsoft, $100 billion balance yes. sheet is compounding in line with Treasury rates at 3 to 4%. So I would push back against that narrative just a bit and view opportunities like this as an opportunity to actually get in some of these positions and develop a longer-term view on where AI is going to be in three to five years. Really thoughtful. Thank you for laying that out for us, James Fishback of Azoria Partners. We know that 
Alphabet's Google has been going head-to-head -head with Apple in many ways for years when it comes to hardware, but really it feels head-on right now. The new Pixel phones, have you seen them? They're kind of more iPhone-like than ever before, particularly when you're looking at the price point. Bloomberg's chief correspondent, Mark Gurman, who has all the insight track around these product announcements. Give us your thoughts. What did you make of some of the updates, the camera, the, the way in which they look and feel? Yeah, I mean, I think Google is continuing to push out, you know, pretty impressive AI-driven uh, products. The new Pixel phones, the Pixel 8, the Pixel 8 Pro, very impressive new camera features, new G3 Tensor processors. This is their third generation custom processor. A few upgrades here that make it a little, little bit more like an iPhone. Uh, surprisingly, the, the facial recognition on the previous Pixel phones, uh, at least the last couple generations, they weren't graded security-wise high enough to be processed for payments uh, using your banking apps. Now they've upped the security on that. As you know, Face ID on the iPhone since 2017 has had that level of security. Uh, the design of the Pixel phones continue to be some of the best smartphone designs on the market. Uh, but the trend continues here, right? Google is pushing out some really nice hardware, great software integrations, probably some of the best Android phones you can get globally. Um, but that really hasn't translated into really strong amounts of market share, right? So that's the problem Google will continue to grapple with, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, making really good phones and really good hardware products that are just not selling as well as their competitors from Samsung uh, and Apple. And that's what Google now has to figure out. They have the right hardware. How do they get them to sell in those bigger quantities? Well, point. We think Google has about 3% of the smartphone shipments during the second quarter, according to CounterPoint Research. Great analysis from Chief Correspondent Mark Gurman. We thank you, as always, for running us through well, what the product's like. And he liked it. So let's talk a little bit more about what's in this product and how they do take on market share. Shanaz Zak is with us, Director of Product Management for Pixel at Google, fresh off the stage where you presented what are these big upgrades to the phones. And look, I've been agnostic for years. I've had Pixels, I've had iPhones, and, and I'm interested as to whether you like or dislike the idea of becoming more like an iPhone. Uh, I wouldn't uh, compare that because I think Pixel are the best phones for Google, especially bringing the hardware plus the software plus the best of AI from Google into people's hands. And that's how we think about our phones. Of It's bringing the best of Google in people's hands. What about the best of AI? It does seem to be something people are now referencing far more within their product detail. I mean, now it's because finally a consumer really understands it. They can touch it, feel it, use it when they're using Bard, for example. How will that be interwoven to make it that much easier product to use? So when, when Pixel started seven years ago, even at that time, AI was a core part for Pixel. And we continue on that line. And as you saw in our announcement, we have AI with uh, supported by Tensor G3 across the phone, including our integration of Assistant with Bard that will be coming soon. It's interesting that, of course, you have pushed up the price point. What is it, iPhone 15 Pro now, same as the Pixel 8 Pro, $999. Is the consumer ready for that price point? I mean, how did you sort of test and feel that that was the right amount to be charging? There's a lot of testing we do, but as you can see in our phones, we've upgraded the hardware. We have a completely new camera system. We are also have a lot of software, and we're also supporting the phones for a longer period of time, for seven mm. years of OS support, security, feature drops. So that's how we think about our phone. But it's interesting, therefore, isn't it, that Bilgo is supporting them for longer, so people might not need to renew for longer. How do you start to inch away at this market share that, as Mark pointed out, is sort of surprisingly low, considering the integration of software and hardware. 
So from, from Pixel and Google's perspective, we do want people to use their phone longer, and we see that people are using their phone longer, right? And so as part of sustainability also is important for us, and so that support was natural for us to help our users support their phones for a longer period of time. Overall, when you're thinking as well about some of the not just sustainability, but security that people want to be seeing, you have been up in the ante when it comes to facial recognition. Are people going to be frustrated that it took so long or what actually goes in to needing to ensure that you can qualify for those sorts of levels of security? In terms of the phone, our phones always uh, were secure. We had uh, our a Titan chip, and our phone was security was supported for five years. So it's we are upping that to seven years. And yes, they are one of the most secure phones uh, out there. What do you think it will take to get the market share higher? Why do you think there has been reticence? Has it been? And just because people are used to the iPhone ecosystem, it's harder to drag them out? Is it more that you therefore focus on an international consumer? Particularly, you've made real inroads in Japan, for example. That's right. Uh, Pixel is the fastest growing smartphone in our market. And it's the only phone that grew in units sold year over year. So we're definitely seeing that. Uh, and we're looking forward to more of that. And especially with all the AI features and all the amazing hardware and software, uh, that's what we're going after. How are you thinking internationally about your supply chain as well? In terms of supply, like you, you mentioned that Pixel is doing very well in our international markets in Japan as well. And so that is a core focus of how do we make sure that, you know, users across the world in our markets uh, get our phones. And what about ultimately building the phone? Because there has, I think, of an Apple that's had to really rethink the way in which its product is made, where it is made in this global landscape where suddenly China and the US just aren't getting on in quite the same way. How do you think about with sustainability on the one side, also supply chain resilience on the other? So, so, like you said, sustainability is a big focus for us, and it's been a years in the making. It's not something we're doing right now. Uh, as we announced on stage, actually, on sustainability, this is the first phone which is free of plastic. So sustainability, where it's made, how it's made, is a key, has been a key focus and is a key focus for us. And a lot of this is also about... Well, the entire ecosystem, not just the supply chain, but also of what you're offering alongside the earbuds, the watch, the way in which you can interact across all of the software too. I mean, you're someone who's been at Google now for 17 years, I think it is. What is it that, that makes you so addicted to continuing to build with this company? The people. The people I've been at Google for seven, I grew up with Google and I've, uh, you know, it might sound, Cliche, but I do love the people that I work with. Uh, they push you to think well. They push you to do the right thing. And that's what I really enjoy about working at Google, the people around us. Well, we're thinking about your product today, Shanazak. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We've got a few more of your people on the show a bit later. Director of Product Management for Pixel at Google. Great to have Thank some you. time. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Let's have a little turn our attention now to VC Spotlight and bring in Morgan Bella, partner at NFX Capital Management, who was also one of the founders of Facebook's cryptocurrency project Libra. Remember that one? She was building one of the first stable coins. You've ridden out what has been sort of the highs and the lows of how crypto more broadly is seen, not only by a consumer, Morgan, but also by a regulator in the US. I'm interested as we do start to see 
the time of Sam Bankman Freed in court, the, end, the, the pain points relived for so many. How are you feeling about the crypto sphere in which you're investing? Is there activity going on, particularly in the, in the startup community? Thank you so much for having me on. I have a potentially not popular opinion on this, but I am so much happier investing in crypto today than I was 12 months ago, even you know before the FTX scandal. And a question that I've asked other crypto founders is, do you think that there's a chance that we look back on this FTX mess as a positive? And people looked at me kind of like I had five heads, but let me explain why. And I think it's FTX, it was crazy out there. And the laws of gravity were not thought to apply to crypto, to crypto startups. And what FTX forced us, people in the crypto industry, to ask ourselves and answer, I think, were three straightforward questions that we all should have been asking regardless, which is, one, does this company solve a problem for anyone or this product? Two, is anyone using this? And three, will this make money? And there were so many companies, and there are so many companies that were funded, that are funded, that don't answer one of those three questions, let alone three of those three questions. <laughs> so like, the party that was going on had to come to an end. The FTX way of it coming to an end was the most dramatic way that that could have happened. But I really do think that there's a chance that it ends up being a gift for the crypto startup world, for the companies that are solving real problems, which I know is not a popular opinion, but I, I do believe that. We want contrarians, Morgan. And I'm interested in, even if this happens to be a cathartic moment for crypto more broadly, are the builders building here in the US? Are the problems being solved? Are, is the money being made? Are people using some of the dApps and some of the applications here in the US? Are you having to go to abroad for those sorts of founders? So yes, and. like We are definitely still seeing companies built in the US. I think what you saw pre-FTX was everyone and their brother and sister was starting a crypto company because it was the gold rush. What has been filtered out now is people that are starting crypto companies are only starting crypto companies because they actually see a problem to solve and actually have a passion for the industry versus they just see a casino that looks fun. So I think that there's a filter now in a good way for who's actually starting companies. And then, yes, people are using crypto applications. But if we're all being honest, like the only application that's really achieved any kind of product market fit as far as scale is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and stablecoins. We are still definitely seeing development in the US. It's interesting. We, we do understand, in fact, that the trial for Sam Bankman-Fried is underway. And we understand that opening statements being made Bangman Free and currently expressionless, we understand, as the government continued with their opening remarks saying that the defendant wanted money he didn't have and he committed fraud. But Morgan, let's move away from that for a moment to the regulatory environment with which we're in, because you do have an SEC chair, chair who seems adamant to police, whether it's after these companies are built or as they're being built. And I'm interested as to whether that's really an environment people want to find product market fit in at the moment. I think it's an environment that people want to find product market fit in if there is like a market and a business to be built, but it's definitely a thorn for sure. And I think an issue is there are very few topics that rally both sides and that gain you favor on both sides. So if you're a politician with political aspirations and you're trying to win favor on both sides of the aisle, going after crypto is one of a few categories that no one's going to really oppose you. So. Mm. The incentives and the psychology behind that are definitely not in crypto's favor, which is a bummer. 
Well, but, but there's still a prize. <laughs> technical yeah, term. I mean, I mean yeah. go in there then and get nitty gritty with some of the problems you'd like to be being solved in this. I mean, what's getting you excited when you're getting up 12 months on and you're saying it's a far better environment to be writing checks into? And FX has a lot of money to put to work. You're already putting money into various startups, whether it's Space, Stoke Space. I mean, whether you're also in Mr. Labs, Ramp is a company, of course, that's all about trading of crypto and assets. Where do you want to see some of these problems solved for you? Thank you for those shout outs. So stablecoin still, I, I spent four years banging my head against a wall. So I still think that there's a lot of room to go there, more from the US government buy-in side. And like, if you think that digital money is going to be the future, the US government really needs to recognize that and get on that or else we're going to wake up and be living in a world with Chinese digital money running throughout the world in people's hands, which I don't think is a first choice for us in the US. And then also just usability. I think what you've seen with AI is ChatGPT had this moment with mainstream consumers. Crypto has not had its ChatGPT moment yet. So something that brings net new users into the world in a real meaningful, productive way is, I mean, obviously the holy grail, and I don't have any specific answers, but something we're always looking for. Well, we'll keep on waiting for the answer to Morgan Bella come back with it soon, we hope. Partner at NFX Capital Management, great to have some time with you today. Meanwhile, look, here's something else that we're watching. Founders of online delivery companies worldwide, look, they exploded during the pandemic in terms of they got a lot bigger, but now they're watching their fortunes disappear. The group includes the founders of, say, Turkey's Get Here and Silicon Valley's Instacart, DoorDash. Well, they've now collectively lost $15 billion. More than in terms of overall market valuation. Coming up, let's talk about healthcare tech. The startups, Comure and Athelas, they're merging to drive value for doctors and patients using the power of AI. Conversation with Tanay Tandon, CEO of Comure, as he brings those two companies together under his leadership. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
taking a look at Palantir shares for you today because the data analysis firm, co-founded by tech billionaire Peter Thiel, of course, was well, closing in on a contract with the United Kingdom's National Health Service, the NHS. It could be a five-year agreement, which is designed to help the agency analyze medical data, detect suspicious patterns, ultimately overhaul its entire system. Now, sources say the government is on track to announce Palantir as the winning bidder as soon as this month. Now, from one Tolkien-inspired name to another in the world of healthcare, two healthcare startups are forging a new path using artificial intelligence to become a health operating system. Data platform Comure and Athelas, which is also from Middle Earth, which builds remote patient monitoring technology, will complete a merger by the end of the month. Joining us now is Tanay Tannen, CEO of Comure, who was, of course, leading Athelas. And I'll ask you at the end why Tolkien is such a like, big part in all these naming of these companies. But Today, ultimately, you're trying to use AI to make healthcare more well, efficient in the same way that Palantir might do with the NHS, correct? That's right. And first of all, I'm impressed you got the uh, Lord of the Rings reference. Most people don't. Um, but that's exactly right. We're taking one of the biggest pain points in healthcare, which is a disparate set of data sources across hundreds of different systems and tons of manual work that doctors and administrators do every day and supercharge that with large language models to automate workflows uh, and grow doctors' revenue and health system revenue. What everyone is, of course, is slightly concerned about with Palantir and the NHS is data and data sharing and the knowledge. How are you making sure that from the get-go, the users, ultimately at the end of this, feel very secure about the security of their data? I think that's a non-negotiable. When you look at uh, healthcare IT companies, software businesses, uh, it really comes down to making that a P0 in terms of how you design your systems and working forward from there to really help at the end of the day, drive value or drive value for doctors and, and clinicians, while at the same time protecting patient information. Uh, and the companies that go ahead. I know. I was just going to say driving value. Well, clearly the business that is bringing you together and some of your VC backers think that you're going to have a lot of value, and you ultimately together you've got a combined valuation of about six billion dollars. And I'm, tell me about the revenue streams there for today. How are you going to be building and making sure that you can win business in a profitable manner? Definitely. I think the exciting thing about healthcare is it's 20% of US GDP. Ephelis uh, already processes hundreds of millions of dollars worth of claims. Comior deals with billions of dollars worth of appointments every single year. And this is just a small percentage of the total dollars that flow through the healthcare system. And the exciting thing here is, is that we can use software that at the end of the day automate these workflows and drive a profit margin for health systems and end of day take a small cut of that uh, to grow the profitability of our own business. How did this merger come about? Was it all to do with General Catalyst? Of course, it was backing both of you. I think this merger has been a long time coming. Uh, I've known Himant uh, Taneja, the managing director at General Catalyst, for seven years now. Uh, he, he's known me since before I dropped out of school to found a fellas. Uh, and the you know, end of the day is a marriage made in heaven. These two companies serve similar customers, have similar end goals. Uh, one has a data platform that saves time. The other builds large language models and revenue cycle software. You put them together and you get magic. And talk about those large language models that are going to sort of be part of the magic. There's a lot of hand-wringing around AI, around ultimately how it disrupts, how it boosts productivity, but also how you regulate it. How are you managing to weave LLMs and actually make it really integral to your business to solve here? 
I think there's a lot of noise in the LLM space, but there's also a ton of signal. Uh, the first time one of our doctors used Scribe, which is an automated workflow for transcribing information and generating CPT codes, uh, their jaw dropped. And it saved them a couple hours that single day in, in documentation. And so for us, language models are a tool to accomplish an end goal rather than, than the, the goal itself. And I think businesses that use them as a powerful software and automation tool will continue to grow uh, and will continue to serve their customers in, in a very unique and, and honestly novel way. Go in there on the unique and novel because there have been a fair few startups looking at tackling healthcare, making it more efficient, more easy to use with the power of AI. And we're just hearing how Palantir is going to be sort of taking on the NHS. What makes you different? I think the exciting thing here is GC's health assurance uh, ecosystem. We have HCA Healthcare, which is the largest hospital operator in the country, on our board uh, and one of our largest customers. We have thousands of small businesses in terms of small practices like private private doctors, uh, a solo practice, 10 provider clinics also on the platform. And so the breadth of uh, appointments, the sheer volume of notes that we're processing every day, I think is what makes us very unique. And the partnership, the deep partnership with legacy healthcare. We're not trying to disrupt anyone, we're just trying to empower them. And then what, what of your post-merger being? Where do you take this? Are you going to have to sh cut down on people ultimately? How are you going to ensure that you're margin focused, revenue boosting in a time where that's exactly what VCs want to see? The mandate here is to grow. Uh, we're a company that thankfully both companies, five plus years of runway, independently on track to go public uh, as individual companies. Bring them together only accelerates that path. And uh, I think we're going to be one of the biggest hirers in the next year in healthcare and software. And so hopefully a home for many of the folks that did get laid off in the last year or two. You were busy raising money in, when you were leading Athelas. And I'm looking at what Sequoia, General Catalyst, as you mentioned, Y Combinator, also NVIDIA. And I'm interested about how at the moment where there is such fierce competition for compute, for chips, for access to be able to build these large language models, how much is that a hang up for you? This is a defining moment in computing. Uh, I think what NVIDIA has unlocked is uh, a new kind of magic in terms of software and automations. And end of day, they're going to make a lot of money on it, but so are a lot of other great companies. And they're going to build a lot of great products. And my goal as the CEO of Comur is to leverage the power of GPUs uh, to train these models to do things that just weren't possible before. And so there will be a fight for GPUs in, in the coming years. But ultimately, I think everyone will get their share. Tanay, great spending some time with you. Tanay Tannen, CEO of Comure. And it wasn't me who knew the Tolkien stuff. It was my producer, Marguerite, so shout out to her. Let's get back to Google's announcements today. It's not all about the Pixel lineup because well, Silicon Valley company also wants to compete with Apple and many more health trackers, for example, and watches with well, the Pixel Watch 2, which includes faster Qualcomm chip. It's also lighter. Let's bring in James Park, Fitbit Vice President, General Manager at Google, who's just been presenting the new watch. And how are you setting yourselves apart? What is the offering that you have different from some of the other things that are on the market right now, James? Uh, great question. You know, one of the key things that we wanted to do was improve upon the great things that we did in the first generation Pixel Watch. So as you pointed out, we introduced a new processor, which makes the performance 
a lot smoother and snappier, and it's very noticeable for our users. Um, we've also um, dramatically improved the battery life as well. Uh, with the always-on display uh, on, you still get 24 hours of battery life, and we're also offering a much faster charging time for our users as well. And along with that, you know, one of the most important aspects of the Google Pixel Watch 2 are its safety and health features. So we offer this feature called Safety Check, um, you just check in, and if you don't check in after a certain period of time, uh, your location will be automatically shared with your emergency contact. So it gives you that peace of mind. And then we've introduced three new health sensors, um, including skin temperature, uh, dramatically improved heart rate with 40% more accuracy, and a new sensor called body response to help you manage your stress. So there's a lot of improvements uh, packed in this next generation of the Pixel Watch that we're really excited about. Who's your typical buyer right now? I, as a parent, immediately am starting to look at the world of smart watches as a way to ensure my children are safe. But who is your generally the purchaser and wearer of this? Um, I think it's really anyone and everyone who's interested in just improving their overall fitness levels and also interested in having a great companion uh, to their phone as well. So the Pixel Watch 2 not only combines uh, helpfulness features like Google Maps and Wallet, but a lot of great um, health and fitness features as well. Can you push us forward? I know it's frustrating on a day where you're just announcing the second version, but what does health and health wearables look like in the next few years? Many have been hoping for blood glucose monitoring. Many are now looking at, well, AI and, and the way in which you're going to have an AI wearable. How are you trying to be ahead of the curve at Google? So you can see from the leap from the Google Pixel Watch 1 to Google Pixel Watch 2 that there's always a continuous um, spectrum of improvements that we're making uh, from general purpose helpfulness to uh, health and safety features. And you know what I imagine for the future is that uh, these devices, whether they're you know trackers or smartwatches, are going to be very essential component of people's lives. It should be something that you know you don't want to leave home without one because uh, you know they can massively improve your life or they can even help save your life in the future. For instance, our, our watches have an algorithm that help detect uh, irregular heart events like AFib, um, which can massively increase the risk of stroke. So all of these things, I think, really bring a lot of helpfulness and utility to people who wear them. What are some of the biggest blockers to the next iteration, to the next vision of, of where you see healthcare going from a wearable? Uh, Why well, I don't see them really as blockers, but I see them as opportunities. For me, the things that are really exciting for me are introducing technologies that were only available in a hospital-grade setting or uh, medical-grade devices and bringing them that capability and that helpfulness to as many people as possible. And that requires breakthroughs in uh, power management, better processors, improved sensors that can actually fit within the confines of a smartwatch. So to me, those are really exciting uh, opportunities of research. And I think, you know, we hinted at this in our, in our announcement today, the application and the use of AI in healthcare mm -hmm. is going to be an exciting new frontier where AI can really find connections and correlations in your health data that were just very difficult to spot mm -hmm. before and give you personalized insights and guidance and coaching. James Park, Fitbit Vice President, General Manager at Google, fresh off the stage. We thank you for it. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You do not want to forget to check out our podcast. Go find it on the terminal online, on Apple, on Spotify, iHeart. 
This is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.